If you don't know how it works, probably it's worthwhile to have an M&A advisor. I think, you know, you shouldn't always try to do your, everything yourself. There's a lot of knowledge and know-how out there, you know. If you're missing something, get an advisor at your hand. Starting a company is easy. Selling your company, well, that's a whole different story. In The Big Exit Show by Peak, we lift the curtain of secrecy of selling ambitious scale-ups by talking to successful founders who have been in this roller coaster. My name is Remy Gieling. And I'm Johan van Mil. And in this episode, we talk to Bernd Groos, who sold his company Cumulosity in 2017 to the German enterprise software giant, Software AG, where he still holds the position of CTO today. Software AG was founded in 1970. 69 is publicly listed, has over 5,000 employees and 10,000 enterprise customers in over 70 countries. We talk with Bernd about uh, his own venture and his dream exits. Bernd, welcome. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Bernd, let me ask the question. What's the heroic story of Cumulo City? Yeah, my, the, the, the story of Cumulo City is that we started very early in 2010 already to identify an opportunity uh, related to the Internet of Things. I mean, everyone is a few years later, everyone was jumping on that. But when we started, I think we have been globally the number two IoT platform player worldwide. Really, just one more we could identify. We did that because we saw an, uh, a need for lowering the solution, the application uh, development concept in the platform based or empowered by a platform. There wasn't any intelligence in application and solution building. It was always done bespoke, once after once after once. There wasn't really cost efficiency related to that. So we identified that as an opportunity and thought to ourselves, hey, can we create reusable blocks, software blocks, so that you don't have to re-engineer the whole stack, but maybe, you know, you get 80% and you just do the innovation for your specific use case and your solution, and you just invest for the 20% of the remaining software stack, so to speak. And also remember 2010, cloud wasn't like today. No, We had the discussion, I remember, I'm still laughing when I'm talking about that, discussing at the whiteboard, should it be enterprise software, so software which runs into on-prem, on a server, or should it be cloud? We It wasn't clear. We had both camps, you know, we had a big fight. We finally decided to do cloud, but it wasn't clear. Yeah? We were just lucky on that decision. Cool. Good to hear. And, and that was the heroic story. What is the real story behind Camilla City? Well, the, the real story behind it then is, uh, you know, when, when you have that idea, you think, hey, platform, great. Let's create these platforms so that people can then reuse your blocks of software, modularity, and then innovate. But what we, what we realized uh, very fast when we then actually founded the company, went to the market and did the first customer meetings, that people didn't fully understood what we had, actually. There wasn't any value proposition useful for them because we had only APIs. You know, we created a software platform with APIs, but no user interface. So <laughs> it sounds funny also, again, you know, more than 10 years after, uh, after, uh, but actually we, we sought API first. Yeah, So we thought people understand that they can call these capabilities through an API and, and then have that functionality and so on. But it's not like this, right? People want to see 
what's going to happen. They want to, you know, have today they, they call it digital twins and, and dashboardings and, uh, you know, whatever you use uh, to visualize things. We were completely empty on that. We had a very powerful platform capabilities, high scalable and so on, but no user interface. And that's the real story. The first, mm. I would say, one and a half years, we uh, we had very, very tough times because we needed to add the user interface capabilities on top afterwards. Bert, you started your career at Nokia. And we all know it was the ruler of the mobile world, but we also know what happened to it. How do you look back at that time? I, I think it is the classical example of uh, being disrupted as a market leader. It's a very, it's so classical. I have so many rem uh, memories. I remember one meeting where uh, a controlling was demanding to reduce the compute power of one of our microcontrollers in a, in, a, in a smartphone, which was before, we launched the smartphone before iPhone 2007, right? Before that, we had a, a touchscreen smartphone. The problem with that was, because we had to lower the cost of that phone, that when you touch the screen, it took one, one and a half seconds before something really <laughs> happened. Huh? But it was optimi optimized. It will cost these controllers and all the company was cost of efficient. I mean, we had the enormous operating setup. You know, we had factories, we had the cost efficiency, scalability, distribution partners. And so the, the whole mindset was related to cost efficiency. So people were driving the bill of materials down. Uh, because, you know, two, three dollars per phone, if you think about 100 million phones, it's a lot which adds to your margin, right? So in that sense, the, the whole setup, the whole operating model was completely wrong for a complete new innovation like an iPhone. And that's, and I see that even, I see that so often and it always came back, these memories always come back. I mean, I see that in many discussions I have today with executives at uh, Software AG. Um, it, it is so obvious that Large enterprises really have a major issue to disrupt their own yeah. innovations, their own operating model. It's, it's enormous. Yeah. What we always say at Peak, they don't have to innovate, right? They just have to buy successful startups, right? That's, I think, the core thing that an enterprise should do. I can imagine that also that was the start also when you, because you did a spin-off, of course, of Nokia with Cumulus City. Can you, can you take us back? How did that happen? What was the idea behind it to spin it off from Nokia and how that it all being realized? Yeah. Well, at, at the time I was working in, uh, in Mountain View in the Bay Area in the US and um, was responsible for uh, our, um, I would call it today, I would call it an incubation program. Uh, so innovation, business innovation incubation. And, and we had a, a few projects But the main, the majority of the initiative was related to cloud computing. As I mentioned earlier, cloud computing just emerged, to be perfectly honest. In 2010, it wasn't so clear it's becoming such a dominant uh, market, you know, and transforming the whole IT business. Yeah? And uh, so what we identified at Nokia, that we wanted to invest into cloud computing because we felt it's going to happen, but we were quite early. Then we looked into capabilities, but actually in Europe there were almost zero <laughs> uh, capabilities, competences in this domain. It was really emerging. Yeah? So we identified that and we thought, okay, if we really want to do something in this domain, 
And we need to go to the US, we need to go to Silicon Valley and create an office there. And once we do that, let's also do the an incubation next to it. So we had actually two roles, building up cloud computing expertise for the company so that we could actually, the next generation of uh, back-end server platforms could run on cloud. Yeah? And the other idea was, let's also incubate based on this and try out new things and new new ideas. So we called it actually, we called it Startups at Nokia. So that was the internal name of that, Startups at Nokia. And guess what? One of the incubation areas was Cumulosity. So we actually uh, incubated that. And then uh, over time, we, we saw that this is a real market-changing opportunity on the other hand, um, Nokia started to get into financial troubles because of uh, many, many things happened. So, uh, uh, so you know, we, we fundamentally needed to refocus on our core. So a luxury, like uh, having a larger team sitting in, in the Bay Area wasn't anymore uh, on vogue, you know, how it goes. And so a uh, long story short, I saw an opportunity. I asked my management team uh, if they would join me in a, in a management buyout. I initiated a contacts to two venture capital companies, one in Finland, because I used to be based in Finland as well and had some network in Finland, and one in Germany from my network in Germany. And and so, you know what? It took two weeks. We had the pitch, uh, with the financing, everything ready. Just took two weeks. I went to the CEO, yeah, spoke to him, and he was saying, well, I, I think... Uh, it sounds like uh, you guys are keen to do it. I would like to support you. Why don't you pitch it at the board meeting? And I think it was then two weeks later or something like this. So I pitched it. It was decided at that meeting. And I think four weeks later, we signed the papers. You know? But I have never experienced such a smooth, honestly, never ever <laughs> experienced such a smooth uh, process. Yeah. Wow, incredible. Were you nervous for that meeting? Because there was well, so much, uh, the, the whole deal was was based on this this one meeting. No, absolutely. That was, an, uh, and you know, I don't know, you know, sometimes you you, you have to have this, um, you know, ambition, but there's a lot of luck and, and timing and all of that needs to come together, you know, and that was actually our momentum, you know, we had a good, um, a good momentum and it was, I pitched it to the team and, uh, and you need to be, I, I think uh, you need to make it crystal clear, you're going to do it. Yeah, you need to be very sharp in that situation so that there shouldn't be any doubt that, that you are not serious about it eh? yeah and i think that kind of that feeling i i suppose i mean i got some uh, feedback afterwards exactly that was the right message uh, the, the figures finance and and all that the the money how much we paid for it and so on it was actually secondary the most important was that they understood we were completely serious about taking it off yeah, yeah. and they didn't get a stake in it right Nokia no. at that time also. No. So they they left no. you, they really did a full carve out and they yeah. left you all alone uh, with the two investments, right? From the two VCs you just mentioned. Yeah. Cool. Hey, what was, when you started, you mentioned it already, right? Uh, the cloud was growing. You were seeing an opportunity. What was the exact problem those days what you wanted to solve in the market with your product? Yes, I mentioned at the beginning with the, um, the exact problem was that we felt that the solution building in this IoT domain was done always one after one after one. So these kind of bespoke. And uh, while the cost on the devices side, so the prediction that there will be billions of devices and machines, things, wind turbines, compressors, cars, whatever you have in mind, 
will be connected through an affordable network connectivity. I think these, these were the predictions, but people often forgot that the solution building was very inefficient. So our, our concept was, hey, let's head on the solution building as well and create this modular software platform, which, you know, helps you to, to fasten up the solution building into today. Actually, people can create a, a solution even in minutes with a plug yeah. and play and intuitive user interface. Yeah? And it's, it's like a low coding, right? Like low coding for IoT devices, if I understand you well. It is a sort of, you could today you could say it, it's a sort of a low coding uh, platform for IoT um, solutions and device mm -hmm. management. Yeah, you could define it like this. But low coding uh, wasn't there when we created it. So but today you would call it like this, yeah. So at one point, you managed to exit from uh, from Nokia. What were the first steps you did? You were sitting in your office one day and you, you, you were the owner of a company and now you had to pay the bills yourself with some uh, VC-backed funding, of course. What was that like? How did you attract your first team members back then? Or how do you find the, the clients you needed to onboard? So we had the first, uh, we were four of us, so um, four co-founders and um We relocated to Düsseldorf, and uh, that is uh, because of, uh, you know, that's uh, my hometown. I started my professional career here at Nokia at a large uh, engineering center in Düsseldorf uh, at, at the time. But uh, long story short, so we started really with four people, and we um, went to our network, you know, we were saying, okay, who needs this type of technology? Who needs that platform? And, you know, uh, because we, we came with a telco background, So not with an enterprise typical background. So we obviously went first to um, speak to some of the telcos. And there's one uh, telco company quite close to Düsseldorf in Bonn, which is uh, Deutsche Telekom. Yeah? And so that actually then turned out to be our first customer. You know, our first customer was uh, German Telekom or Deutsche Telekom. And, and they had actually the division, they shared our vision with that Internet of Things and the high number of grow of connected devices or connected world type of uh, vision sharing. And they also understood that their um, cellular connectivity will play an important role to enable this. Yeah? So that was good news for them because they will sell more SIM cards, not only to human beings, but also to machines and things and sensors. Yeah. Um, but they also then saw, hey, if there is an opportunity to have a software as a service platform, which gives us additional revenue opportunity or revenue upside, that would be cool as well. So they actually started to brand it with their own brand. They're calling it a cloud of things and they're still selling it today. They're selling it in combination to the SIM connectivity business. They're saying then, hey, listen, this is our SIM cards and why don't you try out our cloud of things? It's a full self-service IoT platform where you can create your solutions, dashboards and device management, firmware management over the air and all of that is in included. And, and they're quite successful with that. Yeah. And, and, and those early days, uh, especially after having such a big client in moving to Dusseldorf and also given your background, right? And Those days, also the VC, but also the startup landscapers, pretty immature those days. Where did you get your inspiration from? Who helped you? Who did mentor you or gave you advice? Yeah, that's a very good one. And because I, I used to be based uh, twice, actually, um, once in my early days in California and then, uh, uh, then before, just before starting with, with the Cumulosity, actually, I have, I have probably the, the same 
inspirations and many others are really these kind of a Steve Jobs type of people. And uh, I, I remember listening to a lot of his uh, YouTube speeches, you know. Uh, the famous Stan uh, Stanford uh, speech, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, we all know that. And these are kind of, these are, have been really my inspiration, especially these connecting the dots, right? It's so powerful. I mean, this... Um, That concept and speech was very useful for me because sometimes not everything was smooth sailing, obviously, you know, there, yeah. so there have been a lot of uh, difficult situations. But I always went back to that speech with the dots and was saying, listen, this has some meaning. It will help us at the end of the day. And actually, more often than not, that exactly happened like that, you know. It was good to lose the customers, what good to have these escalations, what good to to have um, maybe not meeting that KPI or milestone because it kind of strengthened actually us afterwards. And so, yeah, I think uh, Steve Jobs' type of um, aspiration was my probably my biggest uh, source of uh, inspiration and aspiration. And, and on a more practical level, especially, right, with getting customers in, how to handle your two your Finnish and German investors dealing with Nokia, probably with the carve out, right? Getting customer on board, serving Deutsche Telekom. How did you get your practical insights? Well, that's a, that's a good one. I think it's just learn, learning by doing. So we just, uh, I remember negotiating my first contract on the Cumulosity side with Deutsche Telekom. They have this uh, purchasing uh, unit, they have an own company. For, for buying stuff, right? So there are three, four people sitting there in the room and it was just me. The other three guys are more on the technical side. It was me, just a kind of a hybrid person. Like I have actually, I'm having an MBA, but also an engineering degree. So I have a kind of a hybrid type of person. So it was just me and then these four guys there. But then on the other hand, you know, I'm not, I wasn't a student Uh, before I was working with multinational corporate environment for many, many years. And I did actually negotiate contracts in a B2B software world mm -hmm. or B2B world before. So that helped a lot, honestly. So it's different, I believe. I see that today as well when looking at startups and so on with these uh, young entrepreneurs, very enthusiastic. Um, we have been enthusiastic as well, but we did and buy out. We did not uh, a typical startup situation. So it, It was, in that sense, easier. The growth phase. So, Bernd, what was your biggest challenge in scaling the company? Yeah, I think um, the biggest challenge in scaling was building the company, so people-wise. I think that's the, that, that was the biggest challenge. Um, so, we have then hired a sales head, another account, another one. So, we kind of grew our sales organization quite nicely with a guy who was managing it. And then we had, uh, you know, the, the engineering CTO, anyhow, the architect team, uh, the project management. and But, you know, we were actually pulled into international markets outside of Europe. In Europe was sort of an easy, easy way doing it. From Düsseldorf, you are in every place, you know, an hour, an hour drive or a flight or something like this. You can support uh, European customers and so on. But then we got actually, you know, customer requests from Australia, from uh, Japan, from, you know, wherever you can imagine, which was very good, but we couldn't serve them. Um, so we tried to serve them as long as possible centrally from, from Düsseldorf. And we had actually someone in, let's say, Central European, bit with North Europe. But then, you know, when you have... Uh, three time zones suddenly, you have a big problem. And we didn't thought about that. So we signed on, uh, we onboarded customers in Asia and the US, 
And suddenly our team was looking very tired because they had actually calls very early in the morning. Yeah? And then, you know, they actually followed the sun, sort of, you know, essentially. And that's, that kills you. That kills you. And that has been the biggest problem. We created uh, too much uh, friction at that time. We lost also some, some talents in that set situation. And um, so we needed then to, to ramp it up. So we opened up actually an office in the US and we opened up an office in, the, in Asia. However, then in this situation, we also had a discussion with Software AG at this, at this very difficult situation for us. Yeah. yeah, because so far the company was self-funded and you had few investors on board, right? Because indeed attracting talent, open an office, etc. especially in the early phase, it's, uh, it's very hard to realize from your cash flow. How did you do that, let's say, in that uh, scaling phase during those days? Yeah, so we did that... Um We're in a situation, I was quite confident that we could do another uh, funding round, a bigger round for the internationalization, because we had a lot of proof points where our model was working. I was very confident. So uh, we invested into, for example, incorporating in Delaware or you know, opening an office in Singapore uh, without the founding round. So we, we did that already, but, but we needed actually a, a new round of funding. And I wasn't, I was actually thinking that was the way to go. We do a new funding round. However, then, uh, you know, something happened, as you know, uh, which was called the software AG, you know, and, uh, and so it didn't then ended up to be a funding round in that sense. Yeah. So at that time, you were also raising funding and also working, I think, with Software AG at that time, right? That's right. So one of our, we had the partner model as well. At that point of time, we were actually, I think, I would even say globally leading with uh, telcos for Internet of Things platforms. We had NTT in Japan, our customer, Telstra in Australia, KPN in the Netherlands, A1 in Austria, Deutsche Telekom, we had Du in uh, Dubai, um, Saudi Telekom, Orido in Qatar, in whatever, Telia, and they all jumped on the same concept like Deutsche Telekom and wanted to get more out of their connectivity with a software-as-a-service uh, platform model, right? So we, we had really a, a pull there. But that pull created this friction because we didn't grow the company into Asia and the US. Uh, so we didn't really separate the workload in a good way. In addition to the telcos, we had also a partner model for larger uh, software vendors like Software AG, you know, used to be a partner of us. And they were actually very successful for our platform. Once they saw they can sign, you know, seven-figure deals with our platform, They liked it. They liked us a lot. You know, they started to become very close friends to us. And and uh, obviously, and then they identified, hey, this is uh, an interesting startup, growing a lot, a lot of traction. We can sell it. We have proven it through the partner model. Why shouldn't we take them on board? So that was kind of their, their question. You know? Now, many startups are obviously looking at the enterprise market and they see this big ocean of potential clients who do really great amounts of revenue each month. But they find it very hard to set up these collaborations as a small player. In your experience, what is a good way for a startup to be taken seriously by these big corporations? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, for example, what we did with Deutsche Telekom was that we had the, the fortunate situation that we had a, a good high-level entry there because of uh, relationships, yeah. And then we went there and said, listen, our vision is like this. If you share our vision, why don't we work together and we co-innovate based on your needs 
and make you successful. So we kind of started more strategic partnership model. But it was clear, it was our IP. But what we ended up with suddenly was a platform which was a bit moving into the telco direction. Yeah? And um, it had some specifics for the telco segment. It's just one enterprise segment, right? You have many segments. But that's what you see as, as well with many startups. You know, Especially at the beginning, to be credible, you need to focus on one segment. You cannot serve all segments at once. That's not possible. So you need to have that inroad. You need a success story and then a proof point, and then you can actually scale it in that segment. And I think that's what is um, sometimes... Some people develop SaaS concepts and try to sell it to everyone at the beginning, which is difficult. I don't, I don't believe in that model. I really believe in a focused model uh, with a step-by-step approach. And I think that's the recommendation I'm usually also giving to, to younger startups. Yeah. Were you uh, worried at any point that one of these big players were like, oh, that's a good idea you guys have. Uh, let's build it ourselves. Well, you, you know what? We, we do have that situation, actually. When you look at it, we have, uh, for example, the hyperscalers, like, say, Azure or AWS. They all have IoT platforms nowadays, you know? Um, we just got recently a rate, rating uh, Gartner, uh, Magic Quadrant. So we are a leader as a Cumulosity, Software AG Cumulosity. We are one of the four leaders globally. But the others are, you know, Azure, AWS, and so on, you know. So they're big, big players. So in the leaders quadrant, actually, we are the only European software vendor, by the way, in the global leaders quadrant for Internet of Things platforms, you know. There are nowadays hundreds of platforms, you know. And, or Forrester, Forrester Wave. Yeah? There, there's also a very well-known analyst report. We are number one on the top right corner, number one for all IoT platforms, even having Azure and others there. Yeah? And I think that the point always is, is not just the idea, it's also the timing. That's what I'm trying to make, you know. Because if you have the right idea and the timing fits, in the beginning the timing was wrong, we were too early. The real pull from the market only happened two, three years after we started. But it's better to be early than too late, as you know. Mm. And a lot of these uh, copycats or followers And I believe they have been too late. Of course, uh, also our customers or, you know, some of the telcos then were saying, hey, I developed it myself. Or then they actually said, okay, I created on top of Azure IoT or AWS IoT and so on. At the end of the day, I think what most people, I'm now very honest here, very open, I think a lot of people do not fully understand what's their real stake, what's their strategy in it. Mm. Is it to reinvent a wheel or is it to add competitive differentiation on top of something which you already have and you can get? And a lot of people is trying to reinvent the whole stuff, whereas they should actually focus on where they can really yeah. make a difference in their domain with their own capabilities and know-how. Mm. And some people are a bit confused about that. Even so, you know, I don't know why, but that's, uh, and I have these type of discussions still today. You know, some people tell me, listen, I'm building this platform myself. For what? I'm asking them, for what? Why would you build that yourself? You have so many different platforms. Don't take ours, take another one, but focus on where you can make a difference where you can differentiate. The exit. 
Bird, you just told indeed that you're different clients, right? Around the world, NTT, KPN, Deutsche Telekom, really um, growing. You had to open offices also to follow the sun, as you mentioned. So you needed extra capital. And at a certain moment, you try to raise some capital. You already worked with Software AG. What was the moment that first that you began to realize you should exit the company and not raise another funding round? That's a good. Uh, it's a good. I, I'm not sure if I realized that or not, but <laughs> I have to say that you know, growing the company in, in uh, Europe was a quite straightforward thing. I think. I mean, a lot of difficulties. Not uh, sorry. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to be arrogant. It's not straightforward, but but it's it's manageable because I think when you have a network, you know people, you you have trusted employees and so on. So now going internationally, for example, you know um, incorporating in in Singapore, as I mentioned, or in in the US, you need to hire people. You know you need to set up for that structure. You need to set up a complete different company. You need to implement a, an ERP system, a controlling system. You need to strengthen things. You have to have four I principles. Uh, you have to, you're completely different. So the, the company needed to change. We were sort of a naive startup, uh, working, it was fun and working and everything was fine. Everyone was was easy, no hierarchy in a sense. How, how many and people were we, working there at this point? I think it was 70 And and then when you go this make this internet you need a complete different setup a different company so so that's why I believe that uh, the approach from a partner and by the way we got approached by many companies to acquire us you know large international multinational corporates I always felt no what what happened there is you're a small tiny wheel out of the hole you will we will not uh, continue to drive our strategy and what we want to achieve and. So we um, always declined. So we, we um, sometimes we did do the exercise to a certain stage because that was the kind of the learning. I wanted to gain that learning experience, you know, but it, it never really happened. We felt it was too early and so on. But then with uh, Software AG, they approached us at a time where we had this uh, issue with international internationalization and 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 you know setting up a new structure new team we st- we started into doing that and i fa- found myself doing a lot of stuff corporate stuff i would call it yeah if you don't if you don't mind which isn't so enjoyable i mean do you want to negotiate the managing director agreement with guys and set up the controlling system and the, the reporting structure and so it, it in that moment software AG approached us with a very attractive proposition. The proposition is, we help you to scale. We we have been told you want to scale globally. We are active in 70 countries. If you want to do that, you, it needs you 10 years plus. But if you join us, you are there almost immediately. So that was the, the proposition was very attractive for me at that moment of time. And I haven't thought about the money, honestly. The money was the second uh, thing, which complemented the, the positive impression uh, on the helping us to uh, internationalize. Yeah. And, and what were those days, the other options you had on the table, right? Because you mentioned that you were also talking to other giants in the market, also raising other funding. Did you have any other options? And what were they roughly? How did you compare them? Yeah, we had, uh, also I cannot name, uh, I have a confidentiality agreement on this, uh, but um, we had, uh, for example, 
large ship makers who believed in that idea of billions of things connected and they wanted to do more than just supplying ships, yeah, so or microcontrollers and, and, and so on. So we had very large, uh, gigantic uh, companies at the back who believed the platform will help them to create additional profitable software business on top of their hardware business. And we had very, very large software player, large router company at our back and a couple of others. You know, um, I think the usual suspects when you think about uh, companies who, uh, you know, innovate through startup acquisitions, you know, mm -hmm. they yeah. they have been at, uh, with us. Yeah. And, and how, did, how did you manage that process at that time? Because you were running the company, right, together with your uh, other founders. You had to open offices, have the FNC <laughs> parts solved, etc. How did you run that process, talking to different buyers at the same time and running a company on the side, so to say? Yeah, that is, uh, we did that closed community, basically the, the founders, the four of us. Uh, we managed the process that we haven't had any external uh, contractors or help. It was just the four of us. Um, we went through one process, so that created uh, helped us to create the first data room, so to speak. You know, we had a so um, a documented data room, which um, and then we we used. This effort, I mean, many companies nowadays maintain a data room, right? Uh, I didn't know that at that point of time, but that was the that was the consequence out of these kind of dialogues you had. You needed to have some sort of a data room available. and and um, But we managed, uh, we, we learned a lot by this, by the way. We learned really a lot because these investors, they're asking actually a lot of good questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they uh, they want the, these KPIs. They are looking for the whole way that helped us because I wasn't so um, familiar with all of that. Uh, helped us to create our own KPI system. Uh, so uh, retention figures and and then uh, customer acquisition cost mm -hmm. and uh, lifetime values and you know the ratio out of that and uh, all of this kind of um, stuff was something we kind of got from these uh, dialogues uh, which helps us really to to create a very modern look at the business you know um, not just the costs or budgets or something like this but uh, more. Uh, really, really top-line uh, driven and, uh, and value-driven. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that the valuation wasn't your main concern, of course. You, you wanted that the company was being helped scale internationally, uh, but mm. the money still comes second. How did you know what a fair valuation was? That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I think... Uh, You know, the people using multipliers, I don't know, we can, uh, you probably have better insights in, in the multipliers than me. Uh, but what I did is I, I just checked out, uh, you know, market comparables, uh, multipliers, and, and used that a bit of a guidance, you know. That's how I came up with my understanding of a fair valuation. But I never did, honestly, I never did like what I learned. I was, I went to the business school at some point of time in my professional career, like London. I went to London Business School. I did an MBA at London Business School. What we did there is we <laughs> created these discounted cash flows and net present values and here and there and all of that. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I never, no, never completely did not relevant, yeah. right? For these kind of companies. No, not <laughs> relevant. And what's in your opinion the best way to go from a founder perspective? But these days you're an angel investor as well. Should You as a founder uh, make the first offer of what you think is a fair value for the company or do you wait for the other party, in this case Software AG, to make an opening offer? So later, definitely. So I'm trying also in, in business life when I'm negotiating contracts today, I'm never 
ever try to come first with the price, you know. And where if, that's my recommendation, if, please anchor very high. Because what you do, you're anchoring your price. Mm. You will never get away with that party on, on that level on price. It will only go down if you say first the price. Mm. So if you do it, anchor high. That's my recommendation. I would not do it. I never, I, I didn't do it. So I didn't say a price. That's a good suggestion. So that's what would be my recommendation. Uh, because, um, you know, let me also tell you why. Um, these buyers, let's say strategic exit, they have their own business cases. Let's say you have a large software company. They have a very different way of scaling you across different multiple industries. Then let's say uh, Deutsche Telekom who wants to buy us. They have their own business case with a, a platform for their own customers and own market penetration. And that business case is probably much lower than a, a, a software vendor who, who goes and, and sells you across the, 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 the countries globally. Yeah? So then that's why there is nothing like one price for a company. It depends who acquires you. That's the important message here. During that process, you know, talking to uh, different investors and uh, talking to, to the different exit partners, what was at that time the involvement of your current investors, also in the exit process, but also regarding the decision-making on that end? Yeah, so um, Software AG, you know, they reached out to us based on the successful partnership model they created based uh, with our technology. So they came to us with the... Um, with a very attractive proposition because they actually studied us and learned through speaking to our employees and, and so on, not just to me, they understood what is the pain point I'm having or we are having at the moment. <laughs> so, so I think they did it in a very smart way. Uh, they really wanted to understand what's the current situation, what's the, uh, you know, is there any issue they could help with? And they identified our internationalization was the key pain point I've, we faced at that point of time. So they, come, they came with that proposition. And then, of course, after speaking to the management team, they actually asked us to sign, uh, uh, if you're interested, to sign us a letter of intent um, with a due diligence process where they actually assigned 20, 30 people or so. <laughs> you know, uh, with contractors and, and advisors and so on. And they did, uh, you know, very thorough um, process and in, in really reviewing everything you can imagine. And uh, so the involvement in that sense, I think it was a very professional way how they approached us and, and pitched it to us. Because they knew as well, by the way, that we have been approached also by other companies. So mm -hmm. they knew that. Yeah, I think they have heard that from a market rumor, or I don't know. Yeah? And uh, so they really wanted to differentiate their proposition and not just come with money. And, and that was a very clever move. So they, um, uh, I think uh, that is also a, a, my, would be my recommendation to a strategic company acquiring startups that you really should study that startup and really understand. It's like almost like a sales case, right? They looked at us as we would be their customer where they need to create an account-specific strategy to successfully win us. Yeah. Now, take us to the days of closing. What was it like for you? How did the contract signing go? Uh, how did you celebrate? Uh, so, so I have to reveal a, a, a funny story here because when we did the due diligence, you know, usually this is two weeks or I don't know, uh, two or three weeks. We had a three weeks due diligence process. Yeah? On the other hand, I had actually promised my, my family 
to go, that was during the February time, to go on a very nice vacation because I worked a lot. We had no summer vacation really and so on. So we booked that already well in advance. And I couldn't, uh, for the sake of my family, I couldn't uh, cancel it again, you know. I didn't want to. So we went on a very nice, very nice diving vacation yeah, in the Indian Ocean during, during our due diligence, you know. And that was... <laughs> Great timing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was uh, how, it, how it went out to be. So I had actually an interesting experience. I was actually doing a, a remote due diligence conference call and they accepted that and they, they also visited our offices in Düsseldorf and all of that. But when they wanted to talk to me and get all the insights, uh, we, we were actually on a, I was actually often sitting in a, on the hotel, they called it something like a lounge room, you know, for when people late arrive or early leave, I could actually manage to get a table in that uh, lounge yeah, area. And I was then having, a, you know, very late uh, calls because of time difference, you know, sitting there until three o'clock in the morning and then having my family vacation then the other day, <laughs> <laughs> doing due diligence in the evening again, you know, and uh, but it worked, you know, the interesting one was it worked, you know, I, they always told me afterwards I was probably the most relaxed uh, startup CEO they have experienced in this type of a due diligence process. You know? <laughs> and, and how did you celebrate the closing when it was signed and perhaps you bought something for yourself as a present or you had a big party? How did you celebrate it? Yeah, so I think then I um, came back from vacation. Um, it was clear, so verbally they um, wanted to buy us. We, everything was clear. The, the commercials were clear. We had a couple of open issues still contractually. Um, uh, we on, on our hand, we had, of course, also our legal team. Uh, we had a, a legal team assigned, which was helping with the contracts and so on. So, And I remember that... Um, and then we went to the notary. You know, I think it's the same in the Netherlands, I suppose, that you have to go to a notary. No, you don't, you don't have to. In Germany, you really have to go there and listen for hours to uh, a notary reading, but that's not in the Netherlands. That's terrible. I mean, this is... And, and by the way, also not in the rest of Europe, which is funny, but it's... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the worst system what you can imagine, what we have there. Yeah. So it's really, they're reading the big contract. Yeah, they need to read it yeah, through. And the whole party sit there, you know, very expensive lawyers on both sides. Yeah? Uh, and they're sitting there, they're smiling. And, oh, they're, they're, they're in a good mood. You know, the, notary. the notary gets a, a piece of the cake, you know, from the total. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's by law, it's the systems like this. Yeah, It's an amazing, um, inefficient uh, way of, uh, uh, of doing it. But, you know, I remember when I entered the room, it was quite funny because there were a lot of Red Bull cans on the table. I was like, what's this? What's wrong here? With because the, you needed, you, you expected champagne. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I expected or whatever, a coffee or so. But uh, do you have Red Bull on the table? You know, like a very traditional, you know, leather seat type of board table. And, and I, I knew then after, let's say, two o'clock in the morning, I knew why they are. <laughs> so, actually, we had some some issues we needed to clarify and I had even a, a break in between for an hour because there was an open issue uh, we needed to renegotiate. And so the whole thing took, uh, I think, six hours oh. or, um, or more. Very inefficient process, but anyhow. Did you buy something for yourself? as a congratulation to making the exit a reality or perhaps a next diving holiday with your family again right give your good experience on that uh, yeah exactly so um, I did uh, we went then for three weeks vacation there was like I think in the springtime we signed and we went actually for uh, at a school break uh, for three weeks vacation 
And that was really my, and then we had this closing dinner, of course, with the, with the, together with the VCs, um, you know, it was a very nice evening, long and nice evening and all of that. So, so we did uh, our part of celebration. So I, I, I have to say that uh, there was not much, uh, we left, uh, we left out. <laughs> Great story. Hey, last question, I think. What's your advice for entrepreneurs who are now thinking about selling their company in the near future, right? Also based on your own experience as a founder who successfully sold this company, but also as an angel investor, what, what would be your advice to them? Yeah, so if they feel um, they're in the right situation, uh, have developed their company in the right way, I would advise them to open up a process. Huh? Um, we didn't do it. Honestly, in Cumulosi, we didn't do it because we had this opportunistic situation with a partner who wanted to buy us and, and, and the, the things sounded quite well. But I will never know if it was that really market price or not. I will never know that because I didn't test the market. So in that sense, I, if I regret anything, I mean, I don't, I mean, honestly, usually I'm not regretting. I'm looking forward in the future. But, you know, next time if I'm doing something like this, I will test the market. Why not? Why not open up a process? Yeah? So my recommendation is don't try to sell your company to your partner or one of your big customers. Uh, you should really open up a professional process. If you don't know how, to, how it works, probably it's worthwhile to have a, a, even a, an M&A advisor at your hand. You know? I, I think uh, you, know, you shouldn't always try to do your, everything yourself. There's a lot of knowledge and and now how out there, you know, if you're missing something, get it into your uh, remix, you know, and get an advisor at yeah. your hand. And, and, and don't try to sell to your existing customer or, or partner. Uh, there's a great chance that you undersell your, uh, the, the valuation or you, you don't get the, the right valuation, which is probably in the market. And that's what we'll be hearing right now, right? The valuation. Hey, what's up, guys? Here's uh, Kellen from Peak. Let's try to do the valuation for Cumulosity. Looking at the PNL of Cumulosity in the public German company database, we can see that they had 4.2 million euro sales in 2017 and 2.8 million euro sales in 2016, which points to a growth rate of 50% between 2016 and 2017. When checking the SaaS benchmarks, a business growing 50% in 2016 to 2017 will have a 5.5 multiple on the annual recurring revenue. Given that the sale was made early 2017, the valuation would have been made on a 2016 numbers. Adding on top of that a premium of 10% as it was a strategic buy, we will arrive at an exit value of 17 million euro. Burns, is that number too high, too low, or exactly right? What do you think? Johan, you're I the, think, actually, I, I, you're you're the expert. I think it's correct because my colleagues made it, right? So, yeah. <laughs> and they're really good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's too low. It's too low. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show. We hope you enjoyed today's program. And if you did, please subscribe to our show at Spotify or at your favorite podcast platform. If you have any feedback, please send us a message at podcast at peak.capital. My name is Remy Gieling. And I'm Johan van Mil. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you join us at the next episode.